0: Hey everybody, it's good to see you this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake. I get to be uh, one of the pastors with uh, Midtown Church and uh, love that that's my job because you guys are awesome. We get to be a church family and that's pretty awesome. And if you're, uh, if you're a guest with us or you're, you're new, just kind of checking this out, we just want you to know we're so glad that you're here. Let me give you uh, just a little bit of kind of behind-the-scenes uh, uh, glance of what we do. We, you know, we spend time worshiping in the beginning, and then we have a time where we teach from the Bible, and then at the end of that, we spend some more time worshiping in response to what God's uh, been saying to us through His Word. And so that's kind of what the rest of the morning looks like. We do, uh, we do most, of our, most of the time, we do like a sermon series. Basically what that is is a set period of time where we kind of dive in deep on a uh, book of the Bible or a certain topic. And uh, give a certain amount of time allotted to that, dis- that kind of conversation. And last week on Easter, we kicked off a new series that we're calling Epic. And uh, the subtitle of it is The Story That God Is Telling. Epic, the story that God is telling. And really excited about this series because I don't know if, if you're aware of this. Because it's kind of different than common thought. But the, the Bible actually is one big story. Now, it's made up of 66 other books or 66 different books are in over 1,600 years and three different continents and different languages by all kinds of different people. And that's kind of one of the more miraculous things about the Bible is that even though all of that is true, it still tells one big grand story, one epic story, if you will. And this story is a good one. It's an amazing story. Last week, we started talking about this. We said that this, this story is like, a, it's like the greatest love story of all time filled with adventure and conflict and overcoming, and we're going to get to see a lot of that today as we uh, look at um, what we're going to be looking at this morning. But this is this is an incredible story, and what we're doing is we're spending four weeks kind of just walking through the, the major plot elements, if you will, of, of the story of the Bible. And so if you're just now joining us or you started with us just last week, which again, uh, say I'm glad that you're here, and uh, stick with us for two more weeks after this, and you will have uh, been given a kind of comprehensive a view over the story of the Bible. It's your Cliff Notes version of knowing, hey, what is this book all about? So it should, should be fun. and really looking forward to uh, you know doing this series together. All right. So what we're going to talk about today is about how the Bible uh, not only answers questions like, well, where did we come from, like who, like who made us, and then what are we here for, which are a couple of the questions that we talked about last Sunday, but it also starts answering the questions of like, hey, what what went wrong. What went wrong with the human race? And like, how can it be made right? And what what will it look like once it's made right? And today, we're going to really drill down on the question, what's wrong with the human race? It's going to be such a fun, uplifting conversation that we I'm so glad that you're at church this morning. But it's a big question. Now, some people, they, they, they might and you might even say, well, I don't even think that's a good question because I don't think there really is anything wrong with the human race. And what is wrong with us doesn't have anything to do with us, but more our environment or education or whatever. That's, that's what's wrong, but we're not what's wrong. You know, I think that that uh, I've heard many people come to that conclusion. I've done a lot of reading and I've, I've came across an interesting quote by someone who once had that view. And let me just read it for, for you. This lady's name is Beatrice Webb. Perhaps some of you all might know who she is. She was one of the architects of the modern British welfare system. And she and her husband and some others founded the London School of Economics. She was a socialist and a secular activist and uh, really had amazing influence in, in Great Britain. But she had uh, she kept a diary and in 19- 1925, she looked back at her older diary entries, and specifically, she came across one that she had written in in 1890, 35 years prior. And this is what she writes in 1925, looking back at that. She said, In my diary, in 1890, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us, and how little they seem to change. Like, Greed for wealth and power. And how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? Now, this is an interesting quote from someone who ought to know. I mean, co-founder of the uh, British welfare system, working with people all the time, says, hey, I staked all on the essential goodness of, human, of hum, uh, humanity, 35 years later would say, I'm completely convinced that that was the wrong thing to stake everything on. What will explain what's gone on within us? Because why do we do the things that we wish we didn't do? Why do we do stuff that we don't want to do? Why do we get in a fight with our spouse whom we love and say awful things to them and then afterwards think, why did I ever say that to them? Why does that ever happen? Now, I'll tell you, just be vulnerable here. Um, Let the cat out of the bag. I am a sinner. I don't know, you're probably surprised some of y'all who know me real well, but yes, no, no, but like, why, like, I'm just wrestling with this this week as I'm studying this and just thinking, like, why why in the world do I do things we don't even want to do to people that we love more than anyone? Like, I was thinking about this a couple months ago. I um, was putting Camp and Enoch to bed. Camp and Enoch are my five-year-old sons, and I I just couldn't possibly love them more. I'm putting them to sleep one night, uh, getting them ready for bed, and uh, I had work to do. Once they went to bed. And so I was in a bit of a rush. Because I didn't really want to be doing what I needed to do next. But I just wanted to get to it as quick as I possibly could. And so I started, you know, getting short with them. Because they weren't feeling quite the urgency about getting into bed as I was feeling for them. Imagine that. And so I'm, I'm short with them. And my words began, began to be harsh towards them. Finally, once they were in bed, camp is pouting and uh he just says, Dad, you you know why I'm sad. And I want to say, nope, and I don't care. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> See you in the morning. But I say, no, son, why are you sad? And he says, I'm sad because tonight you've been mean to me. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and I curled up in the corner and I just cried for a little while. <laughs> I apologized to him. I kissed him, tucked him in, kissed he not, tucked him in. I left the room, and I really did have tears in my eyes. And I think, what's wrong with me? Man, I love these boys. Why do I treat them in a way that I don't want to treat them? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do to the people that I love? What's wrong with me? Why am I, why am I so selfish that I would... Be rude to them so I could go and get working quicker. What, Guys, what can explain that? What can explain that for me? What can explain that for you? Well, guys, the claim of Christianity is that the Bible, this epic story that God is telling, the thing that we're studying in this series, it, it explains it. It tells us where it came from, what caused it, if you will, and what its effects are. It tells us what's going on with us. Why would we live this way? Why would we do the things that we do? And so we're going to uh, spend some time looking at that this morning. And The Bible doesn't take long before it gets into this topic. Last week, we looked at Genesis 1. Today, we're we're trying to to summarize this whole story of the Bible. After two weeks, we're going to be through Genesis 3. So, I've got a lot of work to do next week. It's going to be a wild ride. But today, we're going to just be looking at Genesis 3 because it doesn't take real long to get into how the world went wrong. How things went wrong within humanity and where did that come from. And so, if you will, if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis 3. We've got the words... Up here as well. Before we get into it though. um, I do want to take just a quick aside. And say that as we start studying this. This morning. What we're going to find. And perhaps y'all are well aware of this. Is that according to the story of God. According to the Bible. Our story. Just like any other really great epic story. Our story contains a villain. It contains uh, uh, antagonist. We know them We know him as the devil or as Satan. And there's a lot of uh, confusion about him and who he is, and is he real? And it seems kind of, you know, uh, fantasy, like there's a devil, like it seems so weird, right? But the Bible's real clear that he, he actually does exist. That's the claim, and that we really do have a villain in our story. And let me just try to clar- uh, uh, clarify just a little bit for us about him. Um, the Bible isn't uh, doesn't give us a lot of information about Satan's backstory, like how did he come to be who he is and all of that kind of stuff. But there are two passages in the Bible that speak to it. Most theologians say that this, you know this is speaking about Satan before uh, we were even created, and it's uh, found in Ezekiel twenty-eight, a portion of that, and Ezekiel. Uh, and, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah fourteen, a portion of that. Let me just read you a portion from Ezekiel twenty-eight because if anything, this is this is interesting. It says. Uh, this is God the Father uh, speaking to uh, Satan. He says, you were, you were an anointed guardian cherub. This is Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 14. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Now, no, let me just say real quick, a cherub is not a fat uh, winged baby, uh, as we often think of, but a, but a, a strong guardian angel. So anyways, a, uh, and he says, I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God, in the midst of the stones of the fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. A couple of things to draw out there is that he was created. So Satan is not a god. He was a created being. And he was, when he was created, he was blameless. He was perfect. And it says, uh, you were blameless until you, uh, uh, from the days you were created uh, until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. A couple other things to draw out from the here is that what we see is what apparently happened is that uh, Satan was an angel in the presence of God, perfect and glorious, that he stood in the glory of God, and he was some kind of protector of the glory of God. I have no idea what that looks like or what that would mean, but he was close. To in proximity to God, he was beautiful, God describes Satan here saying he was, he was beautiful and that he was wise and that at some point in time, Satan began to think that he was even as beautiful as or even more so than God himself and he deserved the glory for himself. And so he placed himself, put himself in the place of God, which is a big idea. We're going to come back to that later this morning. But he put himself in the place of God and God put him in his rightful place as a result. And he cast him out from his presence. And because sin was found in Satan. That's kind of his backstory. Now, it's interesting, right? I mean, at least that's interesting. Now, it sounds a little bit like Greek mythology or something like that. And you think, like, is this true or whatever? Well, like I, those are, I understand asking those questions. But if you believe that the Bible is God's word, the Bible is very clear that this, like, Satan is real. And though this is a bit cryptic in understanding, I don't know if I fleshed it out exactly how it went, all went down, but it seems to say, say that the Satan is real and definitely is an adversary to God himself out to steal glory that's rightfully God's and turn it towards himself to steal followers from God and turn them towards him. We have a villain in our story. I like how, what John Eldredge says in the book Epic, which we're borrowing from some for this series. And just like last week, we're giving that book away for free at the end of the service today. If you want to grab it out of the, in the uh, hallway, um, we encourage you to pick that up. It says light read, easy read, but a good read. Uh, but anyways, in that book, he says this about Satan. He says, most people don't live as though the story has a villain. And that makes life very confusing. How have we missed this? All the stories we've been telling about the presence of an evil power in the world, all the dark characters that sent chills down our spines and given us restless nights, they are spoken to us as warnings. There is evil cast around us. War, famine, betrayal, murder. Surely we know there is an evil force in the world. And I I personally believe that this teaching explains much of what we experience in the world today. I don't see Satan behind every bush, every wrongdoing. I don't think that's the hand of Satan, but I do think Satan got it started. And I think that uh, he is active in our world. And um, he's out to steal the glory from God. And because he is real, according to the Bible, he had an influence in this story. And conflict came to be. And the incredible story, how it started last week, it takes a quick turn Starting in Genesis 3. So let's pick up there, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says this Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree? In the garden. Okay, so this story starts with Satan speaking through the serpent. That's why I gave you a little backstory there. It's like, well, this is a talking snake. Well, it's Satan talking through the serpent. And we, you know, that's alluded to throughout scripture later on. And, and even Satan's referred to as a great serpent. And so like you see that, that that's who's active here. And what we see is that the serpent and what we'll actually kind of follow this morning is that the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he comes first to introduce an, uh, uh, an attitude Really kind of a, a sneer or, or some mockery. And then, and then he comes to them with a lie. And that, that sneer, that attitude, that lie leads to an action. So first let's look at this attitude. The attitude right here is, is just the sense of um, mocking God for his ridiculous law. He he comes to him and he says, "Did God actually say?" When he says, "Did God actually say?" He's not questioning that did God say it, like the truthfulness that, that was actually said, but he's saying it in a mocking sense. It's like when someone at work says something that you just can't believe they said, and so you turn to your friend and say, "Like, did did you hear? Like, did?" Did you hear what he said? And you tell them, and they're like, no way he actually said that. That's what's happening here. It's like, no way God actually said that you can't eat from any, any of the trees in the garden, which he did, God didn't actually say. He, in fact, Eve will correct him in a second. It's like, no, we, not any of the trees, just one tree. But in it, uh, Satan is introducing this mocking attitude, this sense of God is ridiculous. Okay, the God is, like these rules of God, they're, they're, they're stupid. Okay, after this. The attitude, you go into the lie. Genesis starting in verse 2 says this. And the, words, uh, and the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. Did you see the lie? Here's the lie. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And what's interesting here, guys, is to note what Satan goes after. See, Satan doesn't go after whether God is real or not. He doesn't say... Well, God, like that's a figment of your imagination. What are you even talking about? There's no God. He doesn't seem to, he doesn't seem to care at all about giving ground that there really is a God. He, he doesn't care if everybody in the world believes that there is a God. And what's interesting, guys, is that most everybody in the world believes that there's a God. And I think that it's like 4% of the world or less doesn't believe that there's a God. So most of the world, believe, but Satan doesn't care if we believe there's a God because it still will be a complete mess because as we see the world, it is a complete mess, right? And so he doesn't, he doesn't go after that and he doesn't go after uh, the rule of God. He doesn't say in the sense that God doesn't care about if you do what he says to do. He doesn't go after God's holiness. He doesn't go, go after the law. He says, you know, it's not, did God say this or does God actually care if you do this? He's like, no, he, probably, he cares. It's just he goes after the goodness of God. Doesn't he? See so his, his lie is, hey, God's holding back on you. See, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to broaden your horizons. He doesn't want you to be all you could be. He doesn't want you to experience life as it really could be experienced. He doesn't want you to be as happy as you possibly can be. What he wants is to keep you under his thumb because he is not good and therefore he cannot be trusted. He goes after, he attacks. The goodness of God, the lie that he says to Adam and Eve is that God is not good. And guys, that lie goes into their heart. And it's gone into all of ours as well. And just think about it. Why do we get tempted I mean, why are, we, why are we tempted to do stuff that God has told us not to do? I mean, for, Like, why, why when we have money, some of us maybe, hey, I hope for you, that you get some money back from taxes. Maybe then you just have to pay all of your money. But if you get, you get back from taxes, you get some extra money. You think, man, this is awesome. This is extra money. And then you think, man, I just want to spend this all on myself. Right? I just want to spend it all on myself. But God calls us to be generous, to meet the needs of others. But we think, oh, man, I, but it would be so fun. To just use all of my money on me, right? Oh, I just wish I could do that. Or, or someone does you wrong, and you know that you're to forgive, but you, you want to hold a grudge, and you want revenge. Because, oh man, it would be so much fun to just get revenge, right? That's why we get tempted? The idea behind every sin is that God is not good. It's this belief that, man, life is really found outside of the rules of God. And the reason that disobeying God is so tempting is because we don't trust God. If we trusted him, then there wouldn't be that, oh, man, life, it would be so good to spend all my money on myself. It would be like, no, that's where life is. So, like, yeah, of course I'll do that. It'll be awesome, but we don't believe God. See, this lie has gone in to our hearts, and it's messed everything up. He first approaches with an attitude, and then a lie, then leads to an action. Genesis 3, verse 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, to be like God, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also ate, uh, and she also gave some to her, to her husband, excuse me, who was there with her, and he ate. See, so attitude, lie, action. She takes the fruit, she eats. Adam takes the fruit from her, he eats. Sin enters the world. Now, let me just ask a question. Maybe it's a silly question, but... Um, What's the big deal? They ate some fruit. My parents spent all my childhood trying to get me to eat fruit. What's, what's, what's the big deal? I, mean, I understand murder or lying or maybe or whatever, but eating fruit? Come on. What's, what's the big deal here? Well, uh, the reason this is such a big deal is because in doing what God had told them not to do, they were putting themselves in the place of God. They were doing the same thing that Satan did. They put themselves in the place of God. I mean, that's the that's the lie. That's that's that was the temptation that the serpent gave them, right? Is it not? He says, "Eat of the tree, and you will be like God." And that's what they do. Okay. Now I'm a, I'm going to make a point that word no one in here, including me, is going to like. So just. Just be forewarned here, okay? But I think that why I think that if you press down on this and you think, okay, well, why is that putting yourself in the place of God? Why, why eating the fruit? Why why would it have done that? And why it's such a big deal about that in the first place? I think it I think it comes down to the heart behind their disobedience. You see, guys, obedience is, uh, motivated, uh, by, uh, can be motivated by two big things. You can have obedience that's motivated by reason, and you can have obedience that's motivated by a right relationship. Okay, let me, let me explain what I mean by this. Obedience motivated by reason is that when someone tells you to do something, you then put yourself on equal, equal playing field as them, and you judge what they said to do, and you determine if it was right or wrong, if it's a good reason behind obedience, and if you say, okay, actually, that makes sense to me, therefore I will obey, then you still obey, but it's obedience that has you in the driver's seat. Does that make sense? And then there's another type of obedience. There's obedience out of a right relationship. Every parent understands this type of obedience. Right? When... Camp and Enoch, just this week, we're on a walk. They get excited, aren't paying attention, run out into the street. I shout, guys, get back over here right now. I don't want Camp and E to stop in the middle of the street and ask, why, Dad? So they can judge whether my reasoning behind asking them to come back is actually good reasoning that they would agree with and therefore they would do. I want them just to obey. I don't want them to get run over. But I don't even have time to tell them that, right? I just just obey. Don't obey because of what is being asked, I would tell them, I would say. Obey because of who is doing the asking. See, I'm your dad. You got to trust me. I want what's best for you. And so you can obey, even when you don't know why. But man, we don't like to obey when we don't know why, do we? I don't. I don't like it at all. You know why? Because of the lie. And it goes back to the, it's the lie of Satan. It's, it's God can't be trusted. He's not good. You know your own heart. You know that you're looking out for yourself, and so you can say, "Well, let me judge the rule and see if it really is for my best interest." Let me obey out of reason, or disobey out of reason. But God says, "Look, what I want you." to Adam and Eve, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to obey because I am God and you're not. God in his grace sometimes helps us understand why he tells us what to do. But there are times when we don't understand. And God would say, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to obey because I'm God and you're not. We don't know if God had ever sat down with Adam and Eve and told them why they couldn't eat of the tree. It's not recorded in the, in the Bible, and so we, we don't know. But man, don't, can't you imagine what that conversation would have gone like? Adam and Eve walking up to the tree, and they're saying, man, this, this looks good. God, tell me again, why can't we eat this? And God says, well, let me tell you a little bit about something called death, and nuclear war, and famine, and cancer, and, you know, on and on and on. And they would say, you know what? That tree also looks good. I think I'm going to go eat over there, right? Guys, perhaps God didn't tell them why. Because what God really was after is for them not to put themselves in his place, but for them to trust him. Because he is God and they are not. He's the creator and they are the created. And he wants the same for us. He wants us to trust him. And obey him. Because we exist as a result of him. He, he's God. And we're not. Oh, but that's so hard. Because we don't trust him. And Adam and Eve, they did not trust him. They bought the lie. They were misled by the villain who Jesus later on in Scripture says he's the father of lies. Like all he does is tell lies. And here we see it. But they buy it hook, line, and sinker. And we do too. As a result, sin enters the world. And guys, let me just, a couple words here about sin. Sin is, is really a robust concept in Scripture. Um, there's, there's a lot of different elements to it. It has, uh, and you could say kind of in a nutshell sense, there's a a vertical aspect to sin and there's a horizontal aspect to sin. On a vertical side of things, it's how you relate wrongly to God. And ultimately, you can sum it up as the vertical, the ultimate vertical sin is when we put ourselves in the place of God. And guys, what comes from this is horrible stuff. Like most of everything that's wrong with you in the world today is because of putting yourself in the place of God. I mean, just think about murder. Like murder happens all the time. Thankfully, most of us are shielded from it. But man, it happens all the time. Well, like murder for sure. That's putting yourself in the place of God. You're taking, you're ending a life. But what about things that we all wrestle with all the time? Like what about anxiety? Many of us are being eaten up by anxiety. We go to the doctors because it's destroying our bodies. Well, where does anxiety come from? Well, like Personally, I, I, you know, just speaking for myself, like my anxiety is really rooted in the idea that I know how my life should go. And I know how the world should go, and I know how my kids should go, and I know how this church should go. And I don't trust God, and so I don't think he's going to get it right. And I wish that he would just let me be in control. But I'm not in control, and that bothers me. But I don't like who's in control, and that bothers me. And I just worry. And I put myself in the place of God. Because what about, again, we've mentioned already, but holding a grudge? And we hold a grudge because we feel like, and we want revenge because we feel like we know what someone deserves for what they've done to you, you know what they should get. Because we don't know what they should get. We put ourselves in the place of God. But man, so much violence and harm destruction, horrible stuff. Because we put ourselves in the place of God. And guys, God's not okay with it. See, that's, that's the sin. That's the vertical sin. And guys, it has consequences. And there's an awful lie, a new lie from Satan that's creeping into our culture these days. And this is the lie of the law. It's the lie that Satan says, hey, God doesn't actually care if you do wrong. It doesn't affect your relationship with him. See, because God is loving. And so he loves you always, and nothing you do will ever cause him not to love you. And guys, that's a lie. That's a lie, and let me explain how that's a lie. Because I think there is some misclarity within the, even the church today on this. But here, here it is. Here's the, here's the lie. It's that God isn't just loving. He is. God is love. Absolutely. According to the Bible, very clear. But the Bible, but the Bible also very clear. That not only is he loving, but he is also just and righteous and holy. And that in him are all of these characteristics and they get played out perfectly. Which doesn't mean that God just looks over our sin as if it's not a big deal as if it doesn't matter, as if it doesn't affect our relationship with him. What happens in this chapter? If you read on, you see that because of Adam and Eve's sin, God kicks them out of the garden. There's a curse pronounced upon everybody and everything. There's incredible destruction that comes. They're separated from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the word death there doesn't just speak of physical, like separation from life, but separation from the source of life, from God himself. That's the wages of sin. There is a consequence because God is loving, yes, but he's also holy and just. And we, we would think, well, it doesn't matter if I sin. Well, guys, here's the crazy thing, and we'll get to this in a minute, but just for clarity's sake, it doesn't matter if you sin if you're in Christ. It doesn't matter as far as your relationship with God goes. It matters for personal consequences. It will hurt others, but it won't impact your relationship with God if you're in Christ. Because your sins are all forgiven in him. And that's grace, and that's crazy. We could spend forever talking about that. But if you're not in Christ, if Christ hasn't died for your sins, you haven't put your faith in him, his death and resurrection is for your sins, then your sin has separated you from God. Because God is not just loving, but he's also holy and just. And there's consequences for our sin. God's not okay with us putting ourselves in his place. He wasn't okay with it with Satan. And he's not okay with it with us. That's the vertical aspect of sin. And it's, it's horrible. And, and, and I get passionate talking about it because I want it to come through to us. Because it's not okay. And it's a lie if we think it is okay. And I hope that you would get that you'd like, okay, this needs to be dealt with. The horizontal aspect of sin is also Horrific. Horizontal in the sense of how sin affects one another. We get a picture of that in the, as we read on in this passage in verse uh, 7. says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That sin destroys our relationship with our Father, with God, and our our relationship with one another. And And this is how the essence of sin in the horizontal perspective is that it causes us to put ourselves ahead of another. God comes to Adam and Eve. He says, what have you done? Adam's first response is to throw his wife under the bus. But to the holy God of the, of the universe, he says, look, look, look. It's her fault. Take her, which is in essence to say, send her to hell. It's her fault. It's not me. It's her fault. Just take her. Really? Wow. But that's, that's what sin does. It causes us to put others ahead. I mean, put yourself ahead of others. You look to others to bring you satisfaction and comfort security, and you use them for those things because you're out for yourself instead of for them, that your life doesn't exist for them, but their lives exist for you. You're always out to get, get, take, take, justify yourself by how you compare yourself to others, make yourself feel worthy by how you look down on others. That's what sin does on a horizontal perspective. It destroys our relationship with people. And it leads to marital conflict and nations having conflicts. It leads to murder and rape. And it leads to me being short with my sons when I'm putting them in bed at night. Because I just want to go to work instead of love those guys. And it's horrible. And that's all I have to say. No, (laughs) we'd be depressed all week, huh? Before I wrap up, I want to show us one more thing. And in this, I want to show us the response. God's response. Because he does respond, and he responds with judgment. You read on in the passage, I would encourage you to do that this week, to read through the end of the chapter and see how he responds, because he responds with incredible judgment. But even before the judgment, we see something about the heart of God that's played out in this epic story in the most amazing way. And I just want to draw your attention to that. We already read the verses, but I'm going to read them to you again. It's Genesis 3, 8 and 9. Right after they've sinned, this is what happens. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Notice two things. First, as a result of sin, the very first thing that they do is they hide. They hide from each other. They, they you know, sow the fig leaves, and they don't want to be able to be seen as they are. They hide from each other. It's the first time we start putting on masks, and they hide from God. And this is a result of sin. It would be an interesting exercise for you just to examine your entire life and look at through that perspective, that because of sin we are hiders. And you'll see it show up and over and over again. You hide from yourself, you hide from others, you hide from God. But God seeks. God seeks, and this is remarkable. This is incredible about our God. It's God's nature to seek, to come after, to pursue. God says, Where are you? And he doesn't actually need this information. He asks a series of questions. He doesn't need to know, like he's not confused or or, you know, ignorant about what happened. But what he is doing is being the incredibly awesome seeking God is that he's off he's out to engage them. He's treating them like adults. He's asking them questions to engage them in a relationship in a conversation, to get them to admit what they have done. God seeks them, and he engages them. That's what God does. You would think that God would abandon them. You think that he would not want anything to do with them, but instead, he pursues them, and he comes after them, And he engages them. And we see that beginning to happen right here, right away. And if you read the rest of the story, you see that played out in a remarkable way through the life and the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get to talk about that next week. But guys, this is too important. It's too important to miss. And so let me just... To to even make you wait on. And so let me just get to this. See, because God and his response to us is that he pursues us all the way to the point that he actually becomes a man. That God the Son takes on flesh, as Philippians 2 talks about. And he enters our world and he lives amongst us. And he lives the life that none of us have ever lived a perfect life. We talked about last week as the perfect image, perfect reflection of who God is. And then he died in our place, and he rose again so that we could be forgiven for our sins. God comes after us. Think about this, specifically in regards to this story, your story and my story. In coming after us, Jesus overturns every, every action of the serpent, of the villain. He overturns the action of the sin of the tree. Because in the account of Jesus' life, centuries after the sin in the garden, we find Jesus also in a garden. If you're familiar with the accounts of Jesus' life, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them record that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed and later crucified a day later, he was in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that garden, he was struggling over a tree. See, Jesus is in a garden centuries later, struggling with the command about tree. But this tree is the cross. And he knows he is called to go to the cross and to die for the sins of the many. And he's struggling about it. Think about this. Adam and Eve in a perfect garden on a bright day. Being tempted, struggled, struggling over a tree. that God said, if you obey me about this tree, you will live. And they don't. Centuries later, you've got Jesus in the garden on a dark night, struggling about a tree. That God says, If you obey me about the tree, you'll be crushed. And he does. And because he does, we can have life. Because Jesus goes to the cross for us, we can be forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven. Because what was the sin of the tree? What was the sin of the tree? The sin of the tree was that they put themselves in the place of God. What do we see on the tree of Jesus? God himself putting himself in the place of man. Hanging on the cross, Jesus is dying in our place. That the wages of sin is death and it's our sin, so we should be paying those wages, but instead Christ. Perfect God, the Son, dies in our place. And in doing so, God also overturns the great lie. He overturns the the sin of the tree, but he, he overturns the lie that was behind the sin. The lie, remember the lie is the lie that God is not good, that he can't be trusted. But when you see Jesus on the cross for you, In your place, when I see him on the cross for me, in my place, what does that say to me? It says that God does love me. What does it say to you? God loves you. Romans 5, that God would prove his love for for you in this. That while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. How do we know that God loves us? He proved it on the cross. And because he did, we can say, God, now I know. Now I know you love me. Now I know that you really are out for my best. Now I know that you truly are good. In fact, you are much better than I had ever dared to dream or imagine. You are amazing. Therefore, I can trust you. Jesus on the cross overturns the lie. And in doing so, he also overturns the attitude. Because the attitude, if you remember, was just this idea that God's law is ridiculous. Did he actually say? And we respond with a sneer. But on the, the, guys, when we look to the cross, we say, not did God actually say, but we say, did God actually do? Did he actually do that? And we respond not with a sneer, but with a smile of bewilderment. Who would do that? It doesn't make sense. The lie, the the attitude of Satan is, God's too ridiculous He's too crazy. It's just dumb. It's just foolish. But we look at the cross and we say, God's too ridiculous. His love is too crazy. It doesn't make sense. But it's so good. Guys, our story, this epic story, has a tragic turn, but has an incredible author who enters the story and dies in our place to remedy the effects of sin. And it's a gift. And all you have to do in order to be reunited with God, in order to have access with God, is to simply believe it. That's why this is so ridiculous. That we would say, God, you would, I would never dream this up. I would think I would have to spend all my life doing good things, living the perfect life and hopes to maybe one day earn your acceptance. But this is ridiculous. This says, because God so loved you so much, that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you believe that, it's given to you as a gift from God. And your sin's forgiven, you're forever with him. Christian, non-Christian alike, we must look to the cross to have the lie, of, God got, the lie that says God is not good. To dislodge from our heart that we would obey him. That we would trust him. The story has a villain, but it has an amazing hero. We're going to get to talk more about that next week, but I want to leave us with this. I love the song, Show the Way, by David Wilcox. And I think it sums this up really well. Let me read this. You say you see no hope. You say you see no reason we should dream that the world would ever change. You're saying love is foolish to believe because there will always be some crazy with an army or a knife to wake you from your daydream and put the fear back in your life. Look, if someone wrote a play just to glorify what's stronger than hate, would they not arrange the stage to look as if the hero came too late? He's almost in defeat. It's looking like the evil side will win. So on the edge of every seat from the moment the whole thing begins, it is love that mixed the mortar. And it's love who stacked these stones. And it's love who made the stage here. Though it looks like we're alone. And the scene set in shadows like the night is here to stay. There is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote this play. And in this darkness, love will show the way. Great Father, loving and kind, just and holy, who made a way for us to be forgiven with your justness, completely satisfied in the death of your Son, And your love completely extended to us through him. You are amazing. God, how dare we question your good heart. We confess, we acknowledge, God, we have been fooled and we have bought into it. Help us see Christ on the cross. Him taking our place because we took yours. Forgive us, God. Help us believe you are good. Help us obey because of who you are and because we can trust you. And God, help us live in amazement of your great love for us. We love you. Amen.